0: You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life.
1: There are many people who do not want to hear the truth because it will shake up the false hope they have that they're going into heaven when indeed they are not. christ is our king scripture is our law scripture and the laws of our country now collide head-on
2: now just to make it clear we don't bow down to caesar
3: so what does paul do when he gets his big shot at the areopagus watch him now, not only has Paul not compromised in order to get here, but once he's here, he says, Your worldview is wrong. Your philosophy is wrong. It's not just wrong, it's an affront to God. You ought to know better. You're in sin. But the good news is, God has extended to you an opportunity to repent.
0: Welcome, everybody, to Semper Reformanda Radio. My name is Tim, and I am going to be your host today. Owen and Carlos were not able to meet this week. However, uh, Carlos and I were able to record most of the next episode for our series on the differences between Clark and Ventile, Presuppositional Apologetics, so hopefully we'll be getting that out next week. As always, I just want to give a quick reminder that we are part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. And with that comes a num- number of other podcasts that you should check out. You've got Conversations from the Porch. You've got Ladies Love Theology. And you have, uh, Matt Slick. Uh, you have Slick Answers with Matt Slick on Sunday nights. And then you also have the original crew, the Bible Thumping Wingnut podcast. And then also check out, uh, Striving for Eternity with Andrew Rappaport, uh, Wrath and Grace. And you also have, uh, two other podcasts with, uh, with Owen Pond, uh, Ask a Millennial Christian, and Memento Mori, so I didn't I didn't necessarily count how many that is, but I think you're covered for the week. <laughs> if you if you want to check out a podcast a day, I think I think you're covered for a week. I mean, you also got J D. Hall's podcast, and so there's just there's a lot going out there. There's a lot of competition. I think I think if Andrew Rappaport makes any more of these popularity polls or You know, we're going to be down in the bottom. Uh, I think they've got some great stuff out there for you to check out, and I I definitely would would recommend our listeners to to listen to those guys as well. Uh, So today, what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about science from the Clarkian perspective, and what we're going to do is we're going to play a lecture uh, by John Robbins on uh, why science is always false. But before I do that, I want to address a couple of criticisms that I heard this week. Now, this is this is actually pretty old. I think this, uh, this video came out like two years ago. It's already been addressed by uh, two other individuals, but I just recently got a hold of it, and so I kind of wanted to put this out there. Just in case anybody out there hears the counter-argument to what we're saying, I want to equip people to know how to answer that so one of the uh, one of the criticisms that we've leveled against science and this came up in our debate against ben was that science is methodologically fallacious and at the heart of the scientific method is the formal fallacy of asserting the consequent now the fallacy of asserting the consequent and you can say fallacy of affirming the consequent, or fallacy of asserting the consequent The fallacy of affirming the consequence is, if P, then Q, Q, therefore P. Now, that may sound, uh, when we say it in symbolic form, sometimes it gets lost in translation. So, it's basically this, if it's raining outside, that would be the if P, then Q, the grass will be wet. Q, the grass is wet, therefore P, it's raining outside, or it, it rained outside. So that, that would be the, the, the fallacy, and it's a violation of the modus ponens um, argument, which is if P then Q, P therefore Q. So it, it would be if, if it's raining outside, then the grass will be wet. It is raining outside, therefore the grass is wet. And we, we know that that would be true. That's, the, that's the, the method of affirming. That's the the valid modus ponens. So the fallacy is to assert the consequence, which is uh, that the grass is wet, as a means of affirming the antecedent. So if p, then q. Q therefore p. And when we when we look at this, it's easy to see why it's a mistaken reasoning, why it's it's basically a blunder because there could be any number of reasons as to why the grass would be wet. The sprinklers could be on, you know. And we we went over this in our in our episode with with Benjamin of course if you recall Benjamin was never able to level an argument against us and as a, as a matter of fact I, I was I was having this discussion with somebody else and they referenced me to a YouTube video where somebody actually does criticize this this critique of science and uh, and, and actually has an argument against it so we're gonna get into that but but as far as it comes to the the scientific method And I read this last time, but I just want to read it again. Gordon Clark writes, A simple argument of verification proceeds as follows. The given hypothesis implies certain definite results. The experiment actually gives these results. Therefore, the hypothesis is verified and can be called a law. Obviously, this argument is the fallacy of asserting the consequent. And since all verification must commit this fallacy, it follows that no scientific law or hypothesis can ever be logically demonstrated or verified or confirmed now th- this is really interesting because in our society science is touted as the authority of all authorities if it's scientifically confirmed then you know th- then it has weight it has merit and so many people today are under the impression that Science reveals truth. And we hear this all the, all the time. People will say, well, science has proven the Bible wrong. Science has proven that, that the earth is billions of years old. Science has proven that evolution is fact. Science has proven this or science has, has demonstrated this. That, this is why I believe that every Christian should have a, a biblical worldview. And along with that comes a biblical view of science. So while the scientists cannot affirm their hypothesis. Scientific hypothesis can be falsified. And Clark writes, it seems however that a hypothesis can be logically proven false. The argument would go, the given hypothesis implies certain definite results, the experiment actually gives a contradictory result, therefore the hypothesis is false. Obviously, this is the perfectly valid argument of denying the consequent. So it would seem, that although laws can be proven false, they can never be proven true. Now this is the modus tollens argument: if p, then q; not q; therefore, not p. And that that would be perfectly valid. That's that's uh, that's acceptable. So you can falsify a hypothesis, but you can never uh, you can never prove or confirm or verify a a hypothesis. Now there's there's a, a counter argument to this and um I, I had a phone conversation with dustin seegers and um that brother is is that brother is something else he is one smart guy and uh you know he's he's welcome to come on to semper Reformando radio anytime uh we talked about sanctification and we talked about this uh this problem of affirming the consequent and um <clears throat> We talked about sanctification, and we talked about this problem of affirming the consequent. And this video on YouTube is actually leveled against uh, Jason Peterson and Dustin Seegers. Okay, this video is titled, Does Science Rest on the Fallacy of Affirming the Consequent? It is by Ozzy Ramses II. Uh, that, that's, his, that's his YouTube name. I don't know if that's his real name. But let's go ahead and listen to what, what this gentleman has to say.
3: Hi, Ozzy here. In the last
4: few weeks, I've heard some Christian presuppositionalist apologists in hangouts and in online discussions claiming that science is based upon a fallacy known as the fallacy of affirming the consequent. In this video, I want to explain why this claim is mistaken.
0: Okay, so the first clip that he plays, and I'm only going to play one of these clips, uh, is from Dustin Seegers. So... Let's go ahead and play that clip. Let's let's hear what Dustin Seegers has to say.
4: So here's the first clip where an apologist, Dustin Seegers, describes what he sees as a formal fallacy at the heart of all science with an example he uses drawn from evolutionary theory. And here he's explaining very candidly why he thinks evolutionary theory is false.
2: One of the reasons... You notice that I mentioned I gave three reasons. Number one, we believe it doesn't fit with the evidence. Number two, uh, it contradicts th- theological standards that we would hold to, namely the Judeo-Christian scriptures. And number three, it's, and, and this is one of the biggest problems, is that neo-Darwinian theory is built on, as, are, as is any scientific theory, is built upon logical fallacies. Let me give you an example. The most common one that is often ignored is the fallacy of affirming the consequence. And here's how it goes: It's the idea that uh, if if evolution is probably true, we would expect to observe homology. Homology is, for instance, a frog has five fingers, a radius, of ulna, a scapula, a clavicle. We have five fingers, a radius, of ulna, a scapula, humerus, collarbone, just like the frog does. And so they would say, see, it's common design or common uh, morphology, common structure, similar structure demonstrates and is consistent with is evidence that is just added to the pile in support of evolutionary theory to show that we came from a common ancestor. And so they would say, okay, therefore evolution is probably true, most likely true, or the greater preponderance of evidence is consistent with one of those being homology, that evolution is the case. What we say is, no, that's a logical fallacy. If P, then Q, Q. Therefore, P. No, that's that's called affirming the consequent, and that's been long recognized as a fallacy. And, and atheist, secular, and humanist philosophers of science have long pointed this out. Uh, started with David Hume, uh, and this type of reasoning behind scientific investigation as far as, as it's related to cosmology and the origin of life really took off after the Enlightenment. Before then, scientists didn't engage in this type of thing uh, to the extent that it is now. They didn't engage in these tissue of logical fallacies, but that theory in and of itself can never be true simply because of the fact that it's built on at least three logical fallacies, the fallacy of affirming the consequent, the problem of induction, and then the third one is empiricism. Empiricism is a, is fatally flawed, um, but the first one is the, the fallacy of affirming the consequent. You cannot determine what's true simply because of mere inductive observations. Uh, Just because we see cells changing and adapting to their environments today, and we see organisms doing the same through the process of speciation, natural selection, uh, geographic pressures, um, artificial selection, whatever that may be, that does not prove that we all came from a rock.
0: Okay, so that was Dustin Seegers, and he was explaining basically the exact same thing that we've explained in our own podcast. And after talking to Dustin Seegers, I I found out that he's uh he's actually been reading this stuff a lot longer than I have. I think he uh was saying that he started reading Gordon Clark and uh John Robbins back in the nineties. I don't that that's what I remember him saying, but it's been a lot longer than than me. I started off reading this stuff maybe about three or four years ago. So He's uh he's seen this problem the 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 problem with science that we've seen and um, so Ozzy's going to raise an argument against what what we've already said that the scientific method commits a fallacy of asserting the consequent and I would say that all scientific evidence uh used in support of or to confirm used in an effort to confirm the theory of evolution all of it commits this fallacy of asserting the consequent and so uh, what what we're trying to do is we're actually we're trying to destroy the foundation on which the unbeliever is standing to assert their claims so let me go ahead and play ozzy's reply and by the way um just for the sake of time uh, i used dustin Seeger's argument because he referenced homologies. I think that's a very good example of uh, the fallacy of asserting the consequent. O- on a side note, I, I think that um, Jason Peterson and uh, and Dustin Seegers, they're both solid brothers. I think that they both have a lot to offer the the church. So I would definitely recommend these guys to our audience. I know uh, Jason Peterson is a Clarkian. Um, I don't think uh, Dustin Seegers Dustin claims to be a Clarkian, but I mean, the guy has... A lot to offer so definitely check those guys out and and what they do so here's Ozzy replying to this now
4: the argument that the first apologist was objecting to is constructed as follows if a evolution is true then B we'd expect to observe homologies in the organisms second premise B, we observe homologies and organisms, therefore, A, evolution is true. That is, in fact, a case of the fallacy of affirming the consequent. But that's because he's decided what will be the content of the antecedent and what will be the content of the consequent. One could just as easily construct the first premise this way, in reverse order. If, A, we observe homology, then B, evolution is true. We observe homology, therefore evolution is true. That's a formally valid argument. There's no formal fallacy when the first premise, the conditional premise, is constructed this way. And this is the way anyone who knows any logic arguing for that conclusion would construct the argument. If that person were trying to offer some sort of deductive proof of the conclusion, that is, proof of the conclusion. Now, one could challenge the soundness, the veracity of the conditional premise if one wanted to, but then one would have to enter into an argument about the evidence for and against it. But the form of the argument would nevertheless be valid. There is no fallacy here. But when or why would one construct the first premise the way these apologists have suggested? Well, there is, in fact, a situation when one would and should construct the first premise as they did, when one is doing hypothesis testing. But hypothesis testing doesn't rely on modus ponens. It relies on a different inference rule called modus tollens. And modus tollens is the inference rule that says, A implies B, not B, therefore not A. For instance, if there had been an earthquake, my car alarm would have been triggered. My car alarm was not triggered, therefore there was no earthquake. That's a valid form of argument. Modus tollens is the inference rule that we use to describe how we refute or reject a proposition or a hypothesis or a theory when we devise an experiment, for instance, such as when we say, If hypothesis A is true, we should observe B. When applied to the case of homology and evolution, as the first apologist was describing, it would look like this. If evolution is true, then we'd expect to observe homology in such and such cases. Second premise, we don't observe homology in such and such cases, therefore evolution is false, not true modus tollens, therefore, is the formal logical description of the principle of falsification or refutability. It's the logical rule which describes the logic or the reasoning behind falsifiability. So is there a circumstance when it would make sense to structure the conditional premise in the following way, which is what the first apologist did? If a evolution is true, then b we'd expect to observe homology in such and such cases, Yeah, absolutely, when one is testing that hypothesis to see if one can falsify it, not prove it. And because we do observe homology, as predicted by evolution, evolution is not falsified. That is, the facts are consistent with the hypothesis. The hypothesis, based on such an argument, stands unrefuted. It's not proven true, of course, but science doesn't proceed by proving things true. It proceeds by eliminating and falsifying incorrect hypotheses, resulting in theory rejection or revision, and any theory which stands unfalsified while having been corroborated by correct predictions, where the conditional premises is ordered correctly, not backwards, as these apologists have uncharitably chosen to do, that warrants our provisional assent until it is falsified. If we didn't observe homology, evolution would be falsified.
0: Okay, right there. <clears throat> I'm, I'm just going to stop right there. Uh, it does not warrant provisional consent until proven falsified, because you can throw out any theory and basically say that it requires a provisional intellectual assent until it is proven false. So I think one of the basic problems is that he's, he's wanting to restructure the argument so that it is not committing the fallacy of affirming the consequent and the last thing he said was that these these apologists are uncharitably uh, constructing the argument in this way so I wanted to and uh, by the way Justin Peterson and Dustin Seegers have already addressed this individual I have not had time to look at what they've said about him or uh, in, in response to this but basically going off of my conversation with Dustin Seegers, I think that there might be some overlap in what we say the first thing that I want to point out is that this is not this is not uh, the the Christian apologists such as uh, Jason Peterson Dustin Seegers or myself being uncharitable in the way that we're constructing the argument I want to read something from Gary Crampton's article titled let me pull it up uh, Gary Crampton's article titled, A Biblical View of Science, and you can find this on the Trinity Foundation. But he says, uh, as, strange as, as strange as it might sound to readers, that science never gives us truth. It is precisely that belief that has been held by leading scientists and philosophers. Albert Einstein, for example, speaking of our knowledge of the universe, said, we know nothing about it at all. The real nature of things, that we shall never know, never. Never. He goes on to quote Karl, K- Karl Popper, who also uh, basically identified this as a problem. Uh, and then he quotes Bertrand Russell. Crampton writes, All scientific experiments commit the fallacy of asserting the consequent In syllogistic form, this is expressed as if P, then Q, Q therefore P. Bertrand Russell, certainly no friend of Christianity, stated it this way. All inductive arguments in the last resort re- reduce themselves to the following form, if this is true, that is true, now that is true, therefore this is true. This argument is, of course, formally fallacious. Suppose I were to say, if bread is a stone, and stones are nourishing, then this bread will nourish me. Now this bread does nourish me, therefore it is a stone, and stones are nourishing. If I were to advance such an argument, I should certainly be thought foolish, yet it would not be fundamentally different from the argument upon which all scientific laws are based. So, this this individual Aussie, I think, is just ignorant of the fact that there are secular philosophers who are no friend to Christianity, who would not defend the Christian worldview at all, who have basically asserted the same problems. The other thing, so let's get into it. So, Dustin Seegers basically said this was what Dustin Seegers was pointing out and he was absolutely right in what he was pointing out. If evolution were true, then we would observe homologies. And he explained that homologies is similarities within bone structures of animals. Cats uh, have similar bone structures to dogs. And so evolutionists would, would say, you know, that's because they all came from common ancestors or basically we all came from, you know, the same, same tree of life. And uh, Dustin Seegers was absolutely right in what he said. He was absolutely right in, in stating that this is a fallacy of affirming the consequent. And what this individual wants to do is he wants to switch the antecedent and the consequence within the context of the first premise. So, okay. So if we are going to put this into syllogistic form, it's it, the the first premise, premise one is a hypothetical proposition if p then q okay the 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 p is the antecedent the q is the consequent so if p then q is is a it's a hypothetical proposition because hypothetically speaking if p is true then q is true if it's raining out, outside then it's true that the grass will be wet so that is that is premise 1 so what he's cleverly doing is so so let, let's use the example of rain if it's raining outside, then the grass will be wet. The grass is wet, therefore it's raining outside. Now that's the fallacy of, of affirming the consequence. So what he's doing is he's wanting to change the consequent and the antecedent within the context of the hypothetical proposition, which would look like this. If P, then Q, it would be if the grass is wet, therefore it's raining. If the grass is wet, then it's raining outside. The grass is wet. Therefore, it's raining outside. Now, now, what I just said is completely valid. Well, not completely valid. The structure of the argument is valid. So instead of saying, if it's raining outside, the grass will be wet, he's wanting to say, if the grass is wet, then it's raining outside. So that when he asserts Q, well, what was Q, that the grass is wet, he's now no longer committing the fallacy of asserting the consequent. He's, he's actually making a valid Modus ponens argument. So he's saying if we find homologies, then evolution would be true. We do find homologies, therefore evolution would be true. So he's structuring the argument so that it's no longer committing the fallacy of asserting the consequent. But what's the problem with that? And and I want to ask the question does that actually save the argument? The answer is no, it doesn't save the argument at all because within the context of the hypothetical proposition in premise one, you're now committing a hasty generalization. You have to ask yourself why is why is it a problem of asserting the consequent in the first place? You see, the it, within the structure of the modus ponens argument, if you're going to reason by modus, modus ponens, the consequent must be a necessary inference of the antecedent. It's a nece- it, it's a necessary consequent that if it rains, then the ground will be wet. That's a necessary consequence of of it raining. However, it is not a necessary consequent that if the grass is wet then it must be raining. So switching the the structure, switching, changing the structure of the argument so that within the context of the, the hypothetical proposition, you're now saying if it's raining, if, if the grass is wet, therefore it's raining outside, that doesn't follow. That's not a necessary inference. That's not a necessary consequent. Because once again, just as we've stated before, there could be any number of reasons as to why the grass is wet. It de- so, so you're making a hasty generalization. If you think that every time the grass is wet, then it must be because it's it's, rain- it's rained or it is raining. Imag- so imagine if you live in an area that is that is pretty dry and you get very little rainfall. And 90% of the time, the reason that the grass is wet is because of sprinklers. Or you're having a, a water fight or something like that. So it is not a necessary inference. So what he's done is he's just changed one fallacy for another. Because within the context of the, of the, of the hypothetical proposition, he is now committing the fallacy, the informal fallacy of a hasty generalization. And, and this is basically why this wouldn't work. This is, this is why, and it's funny that he says anyone who understands logic would, would understand this. So it's it's kind of interesting and funny that he would structure the argument this way, because homologies is a necessary inference or necessary consequent of evolution. Evolution is not a necessary con- consequent of homologies. So when when you say if if uh, if if we observe homologies, then evolution is true, no, not necessarily. That that's a hasty generalization. There could be other reasons as to why you would observe homologies and we would point to the fact that god as creator has designed things he, he has ordered things it's it's the same reason as was why uh, ford car car makers and chevy car makers give their vehicles similar features because they're designed and those features work and and it, it there's an intelligence behind it so it is not a necessary inference and it's not a necessary consequence the other, the other problem that, that we need to recognize is that the structure of the scientific method does in fact commit the fallacy of asserting the consequent. First, you, you propose a hypothesis. Then after that, you come up with, uh, predicted results of, of experimentation. Then you go out and you commit, you perform the experiment. And then you look to see if your predictions were, came, came true. There's no way around this this problem of, of of asserting the consequent because they're they're not making they're not making the predictions before they make the hypothesis, so you can't restructure it. This this was a pretty I thought very this was a clever attempt I think at trying to undermine the criticism leveled by Christian apologists against uh, science as a as a philosophy. The other thing that I want to point out is that he was able to make his argument valid. And it's extremely important that every person out there recognize that you can draw a valid deduction from a false premise. And so we would say in that case that that premise one is is false because because it is not true that every time that the grass is wet, that therefore it's raining, it is not true that homologies, that the evolution is a, is a, necessary inference of homologies so uh with that being said i want to you know here here's another example and i just want you to think about this perhaps there's somebody out there that you know who's a diabetic imagine if if the paramedics came to the house and and the paramedic says if my patient's blood sugar is low then he will have an altered mental status and he looks at his patient and he says You know what my patient does have an altered mental status okay his sugar must be low and he fails to do a patient assessment he fails to uh to to take a closer look at what may have happened well he's just committed the fallacy of affirming the consequence it would be valid for him to say if my if my patient's blood sugar is low then he will have an altered mental status so we what do we do we check the we we check with a glucometer and we check the patient and sure enough, their their blood sugar is at 35, they have an altered mental status. Therefore, my patient does have an altered mental status. That's that's perfectly valid. If my patient... Now, just stop and think. Are there any other reasons why a, a person could have an altered mental status? Perhaps this person fell and hit their head. Perhaps um, they had a seizure. But if if the person fell and had their head and they have internal bleeding inside their head, giving them sugar, uh, through the bloodstream could be detrimental to their health. So there's a reason why we want to think logically in a way that, that isn't fallacious. Now this, this, uh, this individual Aussie, he was, I think being clever, tried to come up with an escape with, from the criticism, but it absolutely does not fly. So, once again, I want to recommend everybody, uh, you know, check out what Jason Peterson has said about it. Check out what Dustin Seegers has said about it. I think these guys are 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 good. I think they've got a lot to offer the Church of, of Christ. And um, so now what we're going to do is I, I want to play a lecture from the Trinity Foundation from John Robbins on why science is always false. And I would encourage everybody out there to, to read what Gor- I think that Gordon Clark, has written the best critique from a Christian worldview on science, and I think his uh, his protege John Robbins has has really taken up that mantle. I think John Robbins has a lot of good stuff to say on it. But check out uh, the the books from the Trinity Foundation. You have um, let me let me look this book up. Uh, you can you can buy a uh, volume five. Modern philosophy and the signature series on the Trinity Foundation. The and and with it comes the the book, The Philosophy of Science and Belief in God. That is an excellent, excellent critique of science from a Christian worldview. You can also check out Volume One. They have a, a Gordon Clark has a whole chapter in in Volume One, a Christian view of men and things. That's the name of the book. So check those out. Um, check out the articles, uh, The Biblical View of Science, written by Dr. Gary Crampton on the Trinity Foundation. All you have to do is, is go in, into, look up the, the uh, review archives. The articles will show up, and you can do a search for uh, The Biblical View of Science. If, if you don't know how to do that, the, the easiest way to do it is on your computer, just press control F, and then type in The Biblical View of Science, and that will come up. Also check out uh, Science and Truth. Let me let me pull up this article right here. Science and Truth, written by Dr. Gordon Clark, uh, published in 1981. So this has been out there for a long time. I think it's a huge problem that so many kids are leaving the church because they think that science has proved the Bible false. So if you're a parent who is raising teenagers, you need to get this. You need to have a right understanding of, of science and its its epistemological limitations the view that is proposed by gordon clark is a view of operationalism science is a tool that allows us to fulfill the mandate given by god to adam in genesis 1 to uh, subdue the earth so with that being said i want to wish everybody a blessed week i uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be back next week with carlos and i and then Owen and I just wrapped up another episode on the Prosperity Gospel, so that'll be coming out soon. So thank you guys for tuning in, and enjoy the lecture by John Robbins.
1: Our subject this evening is science, and I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the logical difficulties with science. Now, to say anything negative about science, and by science I don't mean it in the King James sense, but science in the sense of the physical or the natural sciences, uh, to say anything negative about it today is almost um, a blasphemous in some circles. Uh, the attitude is, or seems to be among many people, that science is so obviously successful We have computers in almost every home. We have televisions in uh, two televisions for every home. We've put men on the moon. Uh, We have invented and made all these technological uh, discoveries. Anyone who criticizes science in the 20th century, any Christian is just backward uh, if he does so. And for some people, even some Christians, that seems to be the attitude, that science is unassailable. It is obvious that it provides us with truth. And if science contradicts the Bible on some point, then we as Christians have to revise our understanding of the Bible. So if science shows that evolution occurred then we have to rethink Genesis 1 and 2 uh, or whatever it might be. If science shows some other uh, fact of nature, then we have to revise our understanding of the Bible. Uh, We cannot uh, believe that a book that was written 2,000 years ago can stand up to the, what shall we say, the epistemological prowess of modern science Well, I don't mean to be uh, criticizing science just for the sake of criticizing science. I think it's important, though, to realize what science is and how science fits into a Christian view of men and things. The role of science for many, including many Christians, is as a road to truth or a way of discovering truth. Perhaps not about God, but certainly about the world around us. I would suggest that the role of science is something completely different from that Uh, the purpose of science in a Christian view of men and things is to enable us to subdue the earth Uh, the command in Genesis given to Adam was to subdue the earth and science has a great role to play in performing that duty but as a tool of cognition It is a complete failure. Now, many scientists used to say uh, that science was adequate. Science was capable of providing us with truth. Uh, Carl Pearson, earlier in this century, wrote that the goal of science is clear. It is nothing short of the complete interpretation of the universe. That's the goal of science, according to uh, Carl Pearson. A very famous um, American uh, scientist, Robert Millikan, who won the Nobel Prize in Physics, uh, wrote, In science, truth once discovered always remains truth. Well, of course, you would expect that, that truth always remains truth. What is true today has to be true tomorrow, And it was true yesterday. The question is, is he speaking accurately when he says, Truth in science, once discovered, always remains truth. There are about six areas that I would like to touch on briefly this evening where I'll criticize science, and I'll put them up here on the overhead uh, so that you can remember them all. The first point I want to make is that observation is unreliable. Now, this isn't a course in epistemology, so again, I'm not going to go into all the things that might be said about the problems of observation, but if you'll just think of the scientific method itself, let's imagine that we're scientists working in our laboratories and we're performing an experiment on something. Uh, do we as scientists perform the experiment once no of course not we do it repeatedly why do we do it repeatedly well because there's a chance that the first time we did it we looked at the gauge or the thermometer or whatever it might be incorrectly perhaps we blinked and missed something um, perhaps we were nodding off. Perhaps we had a fight with our wife that morning, and we can't see what the uh, what the gauge says uh, correctly. There are any number of possibilities, and in the scientific method itself, they try to overcome these by doing uh, experiments and taking readings repeatedly. They don't do them just one because they realize that observation is unreliable. Uh, scientific The scientific method entails a controlled situation in which as few distractions as possible can interfere. When the scientist gets done, he publishes his findings so that others can perform the experiments. Uh, scientists will usually tell you that if an experiment cannot be repeated, if, if they get uh, irreproducible results, then the whole experiment is thrown out. They may have gotten the results once or a few times, but if after they publish their findings, other scientists can't reproduce those results, the results are usually ignored. In fact, uh, there's a an hilarious journal, I think it's still being published, uh, for those of you who want to read uh, some funny scientific articles called The Journal of Irreproducible Results in which the, the authors very cleverly concoct the wildest experiments uh, that you can imagine and publish them in the journal and uh, uh, for their colleagues to read and, and howl about. Uh, I recall one of the articles a few years ago was on map cows how some scientists had realized that uh, Holstein cows were really maps of the world (laughs) and he had he published his findings in the Journal of Irreproducible Results about all these map cows running around but anyway that's that's my first uh, criticism of the scientific method is that while realizing observation is unreliable and trying to overcome it uh, scientists do not overcome it it cannot be overcome as a matter of fact as a way of uh, learning truth or discovering truth uh, the second one is a little bit different and we mentioned this in the second hour of this evening all experimentation commits the fallacy of asserting the consequent all experimentation in the scientific method commits this logical fallacy the fallacy if you recall was if P then Q Q therefore P asserting the consequent I assert Q the consequent Uh, the example I gave was if my battery is dead my car won't start my car won't start therefore my battery is dead in something simple and practical like that we can see that it's a mistake in reasoning but it's always a mistake not just in dealing with cars that won't run what's a scientist do and how is his method involved in this fallacy well a scientist comes up with an hypothesis and if we want to stick with this example I've given the hypothesis is if my battery is dead, my car won't start. That's the hypothesis. Then he tries to, from that hypothesis, deduce some predicted result, something that should occur if that hypothesis is true, such as, my car won't start. That should occur if the hypothesis is true. Then he will come up with a controlled experiment to test the hypothesis to see if the predicted result occurs. The experiment, if we're going to stick with this illustration again, I get in my car and I turn the key. That's the experiment. What is the result? My car doesn't start. The scientist in his laboratory comes up with a hypothesis makes a prediction about the result from that hypothesis performs an experiment let's assume he gets the prediction he expected. We We then say well the hypothesis is confirmed and as soon as you hear those words Bells and sirens should go off in your mind. It's a very good example of the fallacy of of asserting the consequent. There may be any number of reasons why he got the result that he predicted. Not just the one that his hypothesis was based on. There may be any number of reasons, just as there may be any number of reasons that your car won't start the formal logic is the same whether you're working in a laboratory or a garage the mechanic won't make the mistake in the reasoning but the scientist will he'll say my theory is confirmed it's important to realize that the scientific method has this logical fallacy at its heart go ahead Go ahead and ask them. first
3: of all I think i like to Sure. science?
1: No, I've defined it as natural sciences.
3: So if
1: If you could mathematically show that, then you would have a proof. All
3: right
1: Any other questions? Anything that involves experimentation, and certainly the scientific method involves experimentation, uh, as a way of arriving at this conclusion, commits this fallacy. Well, things get worse. Uh, Induction is always a fallacy, with the qualification, of course, that if you can complete the induction... Then there's no problem. Unfortunately, science cannot complete the induction. Scientists are not interested in making statements like uh, some atoms, excuse me, some atoms have X properties. They want to make general statements. They want to make statements about atoms. They want to make statements about light. They want to make statements uh, about Uh, physical bodies they want to make statements about sound so they always in their induction commit the fallacy of induction or hasty generalization if you want to if you want to use that phrase they always go beyond the evidence they will collect information on certain instances of light certain wavelengths certain atoms, uh, whatever the case may be, but they will always wish to make statements about the general categories, atoms or light or sound or chemical compounds or whatever it might be, not having observed all those specific cases, not being able to observe all those specific cases. So they have a problem with induction. Uh, number four here equations are selected not discovered Uh, let me try to explain what I mean by that again take yourself back to a laboratory a scientific laboratory and you're performing an experiment let's make it something simple like um, trying to determine the boiling point of water You heat up the water in your test tube or whatever, take a reading, and you get a result. And the result is 100 degrees centigrade. But you don't stop there, of course. You do it again. You perform the experiment again, and you get a slightly different result this time it's 100.02 degrees centigrade. And you continue performing the experiment until you have an array of values in front of you, all hovering around, let's assume, the 100 degrees centigrade mark, but, you know, within a, within a range of maybe 500s or 10 hundredths, of a point of a degree well what do you do with this what do you do with this information well you average it now how many averages are there anybody had any uh, mathematics and studied averages well I don't know if i go that far but there are quite a few Uh, the, The three basic ones that are usually listed are the mean, the mode, and the median. When we talk about average in everyday language, we think of the mean. We don't think of the mode or the median. The scientist in his laboratory now has to make a decision. There's nothing in the experimental evidence that says choose the mean over the mode or the median there's no requirement that he choose any of the three he makes a decision he selects his average Well, let's assume he continues with his experimentation uh, and he develops readings of several sorts let's assume he moves his, his laboratory up to a thousand feet above sea level or moves it down to sea level uh, if he's done it at a different altitude And he gets different temperatures for the boiling point of water. Well, he's going to, at some point, um, have to take, not only calculate an average of some sort, he's going to have to calculate a variable error in all his readings. And he's finally going to end up, if he wishes to do it this way, with a graph, an x and y axis on a graph, and he will enter all his so-called data points on that graph. He may actually put in the numbers he gets or his averages on that graph. And then he will perhaps draw a curve through it and come up with a rule of physics that Uh, The boiling point of water varies with the altitude or distance from sea level. Well, let me ask you this question. Uh, Let's assume he has a graph with, oh, I don't know, 20 data points on it. How many curves can he draw through those data points? each curve keep in mind describes a different equation how many curves can he draw through those data points how many lines can he draw through them well I heard it it's an infinite number he can draw an infinite number of curves through those data points but he only draws one Now what is the probability of his choosing the correct curve the correct equation out of an infinite number of possibilities zero. zero he has no chance of drawing the correct curve choosing the correct equation out of an infinite number of possibilities equations are selected not discovered, yes. Um just uh clarification
3: we're talking about exercises that they discovered these really what the chemistry
1: periods and biology because they're the most rigorous it would be a lot easier to take care of archaeology or geology. let's back up a little bit where did you get the constant from? yeah Yeah, in the back there Behind the constants is exactly the situation I've described a bunch of raw data. true Um, my, my point is or at least one of my points is we ought not base our eternal life on the sort of assumptions and calculations and guaranteed error that the scientific method affords us if you're going to decide about eternal life and what you're going to base your eternal life on it has to be something with a more solid foundation than the scientific method um, but let me go on let me draw out some further implications here uh, from these six areas um, that I've mentioned uh, number six let's skip to number six for the time being since we've talked about the uh, laboratory method a little bit all the laws derived by this method have to be false if the possibility of choosing the correct one is one out of infinity then none of the equations is correct it has to be false which statement? No, I don't know how the word validity is used there, but the equations are not true. They're all false. Um, And the final one, number five here, scientific laws describe ideals. One of the um, standard examples given about this is the law of the pendulum, about the period of the pendulum Varying with the length of the uh, pendulum string or whatever it might be? Well, if you look into the assumptions of that law, it assumes that the string is tensionless, that the mass of the bob of the pendulum is concentrated at a geometrical point, that the axis of the pendulum is frictionless. There is no pendulum in existence that meets those qualifications. So the law of the pendulum describes no actually existing pendulum. There are ideal conditions that it applies to, but it applies to no physical pendulum in no laboratory. We're not talking about grandfather clocks. We're talking about the most scientific a pendulum that might appear in any laboratory. It cannot meet these conditions. These are ideal conditions. The law has no application to anything less than an ideal condition. It does not describe any actually existing pendulum. Now, let me give you some quotes, if I might, and maybe if uh, some of you have read your handouts, you've seen these already, from uh, some leading figures in uh, science and philosophy Let me begin with Bertrand Russell. He certainly was highly respected for his ability in philosophy and mathematics at the beginning of the century. And this is what he had to say about the scientific method. And I quote All inductive arguments in the last resort reduce themselves to the following form. Notice the word form again. He gives this example If this is true, that is true. Now, that is true, therefore this is true. This is the fallacy of asserting the consequent. If this is true, that is true. If it's true, my battery's dead. It's true, my car won't start. Now, that is true, that my car won't start. Therefore, it's true, my battery's dead. He says, the argument is, of course, formally fallacious. Suppose I were to say, if bread is a stone, and stones are nourishing then this bread will nourish me. Now this bread does nourish me, therefore it is a stone, and stones are nourishing. If I were to advance such an argument, he says, I should certainly be thought foolish. Yet it would not be fundamentally different from the arguments upon which all scientific laws are based. Now Bertrand Russell was no Christian. He wrote a little book called Why I Am Not a Christian. He was very anti-Christian but he was clear-headed enough to see the problem or one of the problems in the scientific method. This argument which he describes as foolish is not fundamentally different from the arguments upon which all scientific laws are based. So it's not a Christian that is pointing out why the scientific method can't provide us with truth but Bertrand Russell let me quote um, Karl Popper if I might if I can put my finger on the quote Karl Popper is a leading or was a leading philosopher of science uh, and a citizen of England he wrote a number of books which are well worth reading And this is what he wrote in uh, a book called, I believe the first quote is from Conjectures and Refutations. You see this sentence here at the bottom, science is at best conjectures and refutations. It's not truth. It's conjectures, guesses, if you want a better English word. Guesses and refutations of guesses but it is not truth here's proper first, although in science we do our best to find the truth we are conscious of the fact that we can never be sure whether we have got it we know that our scientific theories always remain hypotheses notice the uh, the qualifiers here like never and always in science there is no knowledge and he italicizes knowledge in the sense in which Plato and Aristotle understood the word or I might add in the sense in which the Bible understands the word in the sense which implies finality after all if something is true it is eternally true it's always true In science, we never, and I'm not adding these words. These are in Popper, the nevers and the always. In science, we never have sufficient reason for the belief that we have attained the truth. Einstein declared that, and this is what Popper italicizes, his theory was false. Einstein declared that his theory was false. He said that it would be a better approximation to the truth than Newton's, but he gave reasons why he would not, even if all predictions came out right, regard it as a true theory. Now, I'm not quoting Christians. I'm quoting people who are hostile to Christianity, writing about science. In another book, Popper has these words. Our attempts to see and to find the truth are not final, but open to improvement. Our knowledge, our doctrine is conjectural. It consists of guesses, of hypotheses, rather than of final and certain truths. And finally, uh, a quote from Einstein, if I could give this. This is from um, the biography of Einstein by Ronald Clark. If anybody wants to uh, read the book, it's called Einstein: The Life and Times. It's a an account of a conversation that Einstein had uh, with a visitor, and they were outside uh, on a summer trip on a riverboat, and they Einstein suddenly looks up at the sky, at the clear skies. <clears throat> And he says, we know nothing about it at all. All our knowledge is but the knowledge of school children. Do you think, the visitor asked, that we shall ever probe the secret? Possibly, he said with a movement of his shoulders, we shall know a little more than we know now, but the real nature of things that we shall never know, never. Now that's Einstein's view of science. Hopper quoted him as saying that his theory was false, and he gave reasons why he thought his theory was false. My question to you at this point is if there is, if the arguments I have presented are valid, if science, the scientific method, is a tissue of logical fallacies, why are Christian apologists bothering to defend science and to try to base the doctrines of the Bible? on science well it's because they don't understand the situation I guess here you have people preemptively surrendering you have some of the leading philosophers in the 20th century preemptively surrendering and say we cannot discover truth well we know they can't we've looked at the logical situation the method cannot discover truth So why do we not listen to them and quote Popper and Einstein and Bertrand Russell in our literature uh, rather than uh, trying to defend the methods of science? Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I have no
3: idea really, but just watching. Could it be more of that what the scientists are trying to do in the cigar or Christians who are coming to this? Could be like the idea about trying to read the results of rather
1: than the CEO. Oh, I think uh, in many cases that's exactly the case. I disagree in this sense. I don't think. That the evidentialist theologians who inhabit the scientific creationist movement are arguing an ad hominem. Uh, I think they really feel that the arguments are valid. And um, they are attempting to base the truth of the Bible or the existence of God on these arguments. They are not very
3: valid.
1: No, the arguments are not valid. The no, last, was it last night I talked about empirical apologetics? The arguments aren't valid. Yes, sir. Uh, we thinking you left out we Could it
3: that we highly accept as absolute You can't arrive at that time to use to claim to, uh, uh, reject God. If we can prove by their methods Using their arguments that you can just as easily argue for the existence of God as reason, using their methods and forget whether it's true or not, because we already know it is. isn't. if you can introduce doubt in their minds, perhaps this is the whole creation to prove that those people that they're using it, are, can argue for God as easily as against, so why would it take it
1: again? Well, Recall the ad hominem argument is you accept something they say and then argue validly to a conclusion that they will not accept or are not presently accepting anyway. You have to use valid arguments in the ad hominem uh, form of argument. You can't use invalid arguments. Although I've read one recent apologist who seems to think that uh, if, it, if you know an argument's invalid, yet you feel it will be persuasive, go ahead and use it. And that seems to me to be uh, pure fraud, pure dishonesty, to do something like that. But in the ad hominem argument, you have to argue validly. But what we should be doing is, every time a scientist stands up, like Carl Sagan, or whoever, popular, popularizer of science, uh, quote Bertrand Russell to him. Embarrass them. Tell them when they get their act together, they can, they can speak. But embarrass them in the meantime. Usually the argument that I get from an audience is, but science is so successful. It's given us all these things, the microwaves and the atom bombs. Um, it's so successful. How can you argue with success? And again you have to keep in mind that there's a big difference between truth and success and false theories can work many people are surprised to hear that but false theories can work suppose I were to tell you tonight that um, well let me see Portland is north of Vancouver you would certainly say that's a falsehood And if I pursue that and act on that, where will I get? Eventually to Portland.
3: Portland.
1: I will get to the North Pole. Then I'm going south. (laughs) Suppose I tell you, to use a different example, um, Portland, well, not all false theories work suppose I tell you that Portland is oh, let's see east of what's the latitude here I have no idea what the latitude is here what are you across from Boston New York what if we what if we say that uh, Portland is east of or Boston is is west of Portland you'd say it's obviously false but if I travel west I'll get to Boston Uh, Clark gives the example in one of his uh, essays of the milk fever in cows and medical science is replete with such examples Um, milk fever was a disease that sometimes killed cows uh, in the early part of the century or the last part of the 19th century And people didn't know why. The germ theory of disease hadn't been put forth yet. But then Pasteur uh, put forth his theory, and and, uh, some veterinarian decided, well, let's inject an antiseptic solution into the cow's udder uh, and see if that cures the milk fever. So he did so. The vet injected the, uh, the antiseptic solution, and sure enough, the cow got better. So he kept doing this and word spread. Now, the cure rate wasn't 100%. It hardly ever is. But most of the cows got better. Uh, until one day, a veterinarian was caught without his antiseptic solution. So he said, well, farmer doesn't know any different. I'll use some sterile water so he injected sterile water he thought he wouldn't be found out since a few cows always died anyway even after treatment and to his surprise the cow recovered uh, after injecting the sterile water Um, what's the status now of the germ theory of milk fever Uh, today milk fever it's still with us hasn't been cured yet or it's still with the Holsteins I guess um, today I believe it's treated by uh, oral doses of calcium they give the uh, the cows the cattle large pills calcium pills and that's how they treat milk fever today it seems to have the most successful rate of curing milk fever well what's the status of the germ theory it worked didn't it putting the uh, antiseptic solution even putting the sterile water in the cow worked but the accepted wisdom today is that you treat it with uh, oral doses of calcium and science if you read a history of science has several stories like that of things false theories theories which are now regarded as false working So false theories sometimes work. Truth, it's not required for success that a theory be true. But true theories will always work. False theories sometimes may, sometimes may not work. But there's no problem with believing that science does not provide us with truth yet sometimes works. Yes, sir. Would
3: it not be more correct to say that given that
1: you do better than what you statistically
3: expect, that you have uncovered some portion? of it? Some portion of? Some truth of how things
1: work. No, the probability is zero. There's there's no there's no probability greater than zero. no we don't learn things through the scientific method we learn them by revelation if you want to learn truth you read your Bible study the Bible you don't go out and perform experiments and collect data it's the method that's wrong if you're going to say that's the only method we have then yes your conclusion would follow we can't learn truth but it's not the only method it is the method most widely respected in the modern world well in a scientific context it's a value with a variable error of zero that's how I've defined it that's truth. if there's an error there it's not true Well they have a looser definition A false definition It's a definition that involves error So it's not true